when I was in college, I worked at the campus bookstore. And at the campus bookstore, I was able to meet many different um, vendors as they came through to either show their product or to demonstrate how to use a certain product as they brought different books through for professors to use and, and we would order those books. Some of the most interesting conversations that I had though were, were with the delivery drivers. We had uh, a number of different kinds of deliveries that would come through and you know places like FedEx, UPS. Uh, one conversation in particular stands out to me with a FedEx driver as uh, he came through on one particular day and was kind of lamenting the foolishness of uh, some of the drivers during the day and he said you know one of the most frustrating things for me is that I just cannot respond the way I want to because I have a massive FedEx sign on the back of my truck I work for FedEx I have the name FedEx plastered all over my truck and if I were to drive in any way that reflects how I feel about the foolishness of others then it would reflect poorly on FedEx and I cannot do that and I can relate with that because there are a lot of people who drive foolishly and uh, sometimes I want to respond uh, a certain kind of way, um, but um, that sort of hit me as I was thinking about this passage in Philippians that we were going through. As we've been studying through Philippians, we've been reminded of our responsibility that we are to let our light shine. In this broader section from chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 18, Paul exhorts the church to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, we are to live as citizens of the kingdom. Our life should communicate the gospel of Christ since we are people of his kingdom. We represent him. We reflect him. Last week we talked about the importance of unity as the people of God, as those who have been given the spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, the life of Christ. Humility ought to characterize our dealings with others. This is especially true because of the humility that characterized the life of Jesus from his incarnation to his crucifixion, humility defined Jesus' life and ministry. Thus, it ought to define our lives as those who have the life of Christ in us. We rest in that unity that we have as members of the body of Christ, and we're to reach forward for that unity. But all of this has been driving towards this final point as we come to the conclusion of this section as we approach our passage for this morning walking in a manner worthy of the gospel means not only taking care with our relationships with one another but also thinking through how this affects the way the world sees Christ our attitudes our actions the way we deal with conflict even trial the way we respond to those things makes a difference in the world and the difference is between the world seeing the light of Christ in us versus it not we are the light of Christ as we shine the light of Christ. We have been placed in a dark world and we've been left in this dark world to shine the light of Christ so that he might be glorified 
through us. The message of this passage from chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 in the book of Philippians is very simple. We honor the Lord Jesus with our testimony to the world. What the world sees from us, the light in a very dark place, is a part of how we walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Go ahead and read that section together and then take a closer look. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Let's read together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word which sanctifies us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is the primary request that Paul makes. There are four points if you're following along or making an outline. First, work out your salvation in view of Paul's personal plea. Paul gives a very personal and you can even say pastoral plea to the church in the first part of verse 12. Second, work out your salvation in view of God's provision of grace in chapter 2, verse 13. Third, work out your salvation in view of God's greater plan for salvation. That's in verses 14 through the first part of verse 16. And fourth, work out your salvation in view of God's plan for his people. That's in the second part of verse 16 through 18. Well, let's take a look at that first point. Look again at verse 12. Work out your salvation in view of Paul's personal plea to the church here. He says again in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but now much more in my absence. As I've said many times before, this is a personal letter. Paul doesn't hesitate to use personal language in writing to this church that had become dear to him. Recall his words in chapter 1 where he said, I give thanks to God in all my remembrance of you. He said, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And he says, I have you in my heart. In chapter 2, a little bit earlier, we looked at these words last week where he declared that his joy was bound up in their unity. He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul cares deeply for this church and is not afraid to use his close personal relationship with them to motivate them to action. He calls them his beloved in our text. He says to them, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but also in my absence. He says, you are my beloved. I love you all. As you have been faithful to do what I've asked you as an apostle, as your first pastor, while I was with you physically, I hope that you'll continue to do that even though I'm not now with you physically. 
Obedience, particularly to the command of Christ, ought to characterize the life of any believer. Paul, as an apostle, brought the weight of the command of Christ with every command that he gave to the church, though we don't usually see Paul using the weight of his apostleship to encourage. Typically, we see him making an appeal in the way that he does here, where he says, my beloved. This is an appeal of a father to children, of a brother to a sibling. These are the words of a dear friend one to another. Beloved, this is important. Don't miss it. Be diligent to obey my words. Listen, this is the kind of appeal that we ought to make with one another as we seek to encourage one another in Christ. As we see each other striving to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, as we see each other even failing in this effort, as we see each other striving to do this, we are to appeal to one another as one who loves the beloved. Far too often, we approach our faith and our family in the faith as if we are disinterested and only mildly associated souls who connect for an hour and a half on Sunday morning and drift apart Monday through Saturday. But we are family. We are to love one another. Humility with regards to one another is fueled by our love for one another. You wouldn't leave a, a household family member to flounder in difficulty or to harm themselves if you had access to them and the ability to at least encourage them to do what was right. Why would you do otherwise within the family of God? This family is eternal. Love one another. Care for one another. Plead with one another that we might walk in a manner worthy of Christ, that we would obey the command of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul is writing there to the whole church, not just to the leadership, not just to the elders, not to those who are spiritual leaders or teachers. He's speaking to the whole church. All of you ought to do this with and for one another. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. And of course, Hebrews 10, which I've read many times already. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to gather together. And as you gather together, encourage one another. That is a part of why we gather together. It's not just for you to come here to get fed, for you to come here to sit and soak. It's for you to come here to give, to encourage, to admonish, to love one another. Back to our text. While these words of encouragement are firmly rooted in Paul's relationship with them as their founding apostle, it's certainly more than that. That therefore reminds us that what he is about to say is also rooted in what he said previously. In the immediate context of our message from last week, Paul was again encouraging humility on the basis of the humility of Christ. Since it is true that we have a Savior who himself is humble and who sought to do what was best for others, we ought to be characterized by the same. 
He said we have the mind of Christ, and so we ought to be characterized in the same way that Christ was. And so we ought to desire what is in the best interest of one another, and we ought to pursue that. Again, therefore, my beloved, as we get back to our text, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, this is the commanding phrase. This is the main driving point that Paul is making in this short section. Work out your salvation. That's not hard to understand, right? Live out your salvation. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's really the same command that he's given to them previously. He's not, not saying anything new, just in a different way. Your life should communicate the gospel. Work out your salvation. It should be outward and visible. Moreover, this should be a continual effort. It should characterize your life. This is not a one-time thing. Working out your salvation involves an ongoing effort. The Christian life is never characterized as easy. He qualifies the statement with the next phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why does he add the qualifier? Well, generally, I think that Paul wanted to impress upon them the seriousness of this command. I don't think he intended for them to have fear and trembling with regard to him or his coming. Again, he wasn't even sure if he would make it back to see them. The fear and trembling, rather, is no doubt a reminder of God's judgment. Ultimately, God is the one who will judge. He is the one who will evaluate our lives to see whether we have walked in a manner worthy. He is the one who will determine if we have worked out our salvation as we have lived it before him. R.C. Sproul used to give what he called a quorum deo thought at the end of many of his messages during his radio broadcast. Quorum deo means before God. The idea was to give listeners something to ponder and to apply as they left off from hearing the broadcast knowing that they were accountable before God, knowing that they lived before the face of God daily. He wanted to leave them with one note, one thought that they could apply to their lives and put the word of God into action. Well, this is Paul's quorum deo thought that he adds to his main admonition. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There ought to be trepidation. There ought to be a measure of fear as we think about how we live our lives. And I'm convinced that the reason why we sin so freely is because we do not think that anyone is watching. We think sinfully, we speak sinfully, we do sinful things, things contrary to the word of God, precisely because we don't really believe that anyone sees us. We are in our own little enclosed area. We're in our room. We're in our secret closet. And we conjure up and we, we pursue all manner of sinful things, wicked things, things contrary to the word of God, things that prohibit us from walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we do this precisely because we believe, we think in our minds that no one will see me, no one will know. And in reality, the only one who really matters always sees. He always knows. When you're tempted to sin, it is a good question to ask yourself. If Jesus were sitting here beside me, would I do it? Because again, the reality is that if you are in Christ, he is not only sitting beside you, but he's dwelling in you. 
through his Holy Spirit. And that brings us to our next point. Again, our first point was to work out your salvation in view of this personal plea that Paul gives. But second, work out your salvation in view of God's provision of grace. In view of God's provision of grace, it's verse 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has not left us alone. He is with us. He commands us to work out our salvation. He commands us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. But he has not left us alone to figure out on our own what that means or to do it in our own strength. God is at work in you. Paul teased this truth earlier in the letter when he said in chapter 1, I am confident that the one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. God has begun a good work in us through the gospel. I labored over that point last week. God has given us new life in the gospel. He doesn't just expect for us to believe a bunch of cleverly arranged truth claims about Jesus. That is not what it means to be a believer, nor what it means to be born again. To be born again means to have the life of God at work in you. John chapter 3, Jesus talked about Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, the one who had all of the information. He knew it all. But Jesus said, one thing you miss, one thing you're lacking, you need to be born from above. You need to be born again. You need to have new life in you. Again, last week we mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe it is, where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. To be born again is to be given new life by God. In Ephesians chapter 1, we talked about that sealing presence of the Holy Spirit. God gives you new life. There's new life that is given to you through the gospel. And the Holy Spirit seals that person and acts as a down payment in view of future, full, final redemption. To believe is to have an active, conscious trust in the Lord Jesus and that active conscious trust in the Lord Jesus is the means by which the reason for which God grants new life Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross precisely so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and he gives us his Holy Spirit in order to effect righteousness in us, to work righteousness in us. The fruit of the Spirit passage that we all memorized when we went to Sunday school in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those things are the fruit of the Spirit. You know a tree by its fruit. Jesus used that analogy. You know, an apple tree is an apple tree because it bears apples. If it didn't bear apples, you wouldn't know that it was an apple tree. Or at least it wouldn't be a healthy apple tree. A pear tree is a pear tree because it bears pears, right? Well, one who is born of the Spirit, one who is born from above, one who is born again ought to bear fruit from above. 
fruit from the Spirit, who works regeneration. And that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when our text says that God is at work in you, it is a reminder that we have God within us at all times. He indwells us. He is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. When he commands us to obey, he doesn't just expect us to obey in our own strength. He commands us to obey and he gives us the grace to obey through the provision of the Spirit. These two verses summarize the tension in theology between things that are a matter of God's sovereignty and things that are a matter of man's responsibility. In our text, Paul says that we are to work out our salvation because God is at work in us. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The question is, do you believe this? I think that's one of the most important questions when it comes to sanctification, to working out your salvation, to growing more to be like Jesus. Do you believe this? You believe that Jesus saves, he delivers you from judgment, he delivers you from hell, but do you believe that he saves you from the power of sin? Do you believe that he saves you both from sin and for good works? Romans chapter 6. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been freed from sin. He goes on. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, if in that passage, all we heard was, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. If that is all that we heard, then there would be many, many a sad believer. Because we could scarcely do this before coming to faith in Christ. We could scarcely say no to sin, scarcely avoid temptation. 
But that is not all that Paul says. He says all of that after what he said before. And what he said before is that we died to sin. He said that we have been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. He says that we are no longer enslaved to sin. The one who has died has been freed from sin. And then he says, you must consider, reckon, think of yourself as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's the crux of the matter. Now that we are in Christ, we are dead to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We have to believe that. We have to believe that and now stop presenting our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Start presenting our members to God for matters of righteousness. This is true of you if you are in Christ. Certainly not true of you if you're not in Christ, but if you are in Christ, this is true of you. He has saved you from the penalty of sin. He also saves you from the power of sin. Ultimately, he'll deliver you from the presence of sin. God gives you his grace. He provides his grace to help you to say no to sin. As we move forward in the passage, we realize it's, it's much more than that. Our text says again, God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you both to will, meaning to have the desire to do things for his good pleasure, and to work, meaning to accomplish his good pleasure. God is at work in you to do both, and we certainly need both. Jesus made it clear that sin begins in the heart. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin starts in the heart. It's not enough just to not commit adultery. If you are looking lustfully at someone who is not your spouse, then you have already committed adultery. James records for us how sin works itself out in the heart of man. James 1.15, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Desire conceived. There is a desire, a, a want in the heart. There is a will, an intent, a purpose associated with that desire. I want this. I am willing that I should have this. It may even be considered a need. I need to have this. Whatever it is, it starts in the heart. The heart says, I want to have this. I need to have this. James says that is sin. And that sin that becomes full grown brings forth death. The issue of sin begins in the heart. It begins with sinful desires that we have and it is brought forth as an outward act of sin. Our sin issue, in other words, is not just a matter of physically doing right or wrong. 
It's a matter of our desires, our innermost thoughts, which are prone to wander, prone to wickedness. Sometimes when we talk about struggling with sin, when we, pray, when we seek accountability for sin, we often seek accountability and talk about our struggle with something external to us. We talk about the act of sinning externally, the physical act, the time when we put our hands on someone or something that is not ours and we do something wicked or we say something out of our lips. But sin doesn't start with the physical act. Sin starts in the heart. And so if we are seeking to rid ourselves of sin, if we're fighting against sin, then it has to start with the desires, yes? Well, this is, of course, where the Word of God comes in. The Word of God, through the Spirit of God, stirs up our holy affections to desire what is right. The more time we spend in the Word, with God's truth, His promises, the more our affections, our desires will change and be shaped and molded to be more like Christ. That's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. He says, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, what are the mercies of God? The mercies of God are all of what he said in chapters 1 through 11. He spent chapters 1 through 11 of Romans talking about what the mercy of God looks like to sinful men in our salvation. And then he says in, in chapter 12, now you need to do something about it. As you have been pondering and thinking over the mercies of God, now do something about it. Now be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As your mind is mulling over and chewing over and, and, and thinking on the goodness of God, the mercies of God, your affections are being stirred up to the things of God, to think like God does about who he is and about who we are. Now you can go about presenting yourself. Now you can go about pursuing the will of God. This is why we have the promise of God in our text this morning to remind us that God is concerned of all of us, not just the external part that others see. He sees what's on the inside. He hears the wicked thoughts and intentions of the heart. He is with us who have faith in his son and by his Holy Spirit, he is at work in us, not just to do, but also to desire for his good pleasure, not just to will, but also to work for his good pleasure. So again, if you're struggling with doing the will of God, if you're struggling against sin, remember that God is at work in you and pray this passage to the Lord. Lord, help me both to desire and to do what is good in your sight. And before we move on from this, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that this command is given to the whole church. Of course, this whole letter is written to the church. Often when we think about our own salvation, working out our salvation, we think about it as an individual thing. But Paul is here talking to a church, a group of people. He's saying this is what you collectively must do. So our salvation and our working out of our salvation is done in community. It's not done on an island. It's not done as an individual. 
So often, again, going back to that first one, we take this very individualistic approach to life as being influenced by the world, because that's what the world does. We take this very individualistic approach to our Christian life and think that I have to figure this out on my own. I have to work it out on my own. I have to strive to be a good little Christian on my own. When God has provided us grace in the family of God, other people to be here with us and to be here for us to encourage us through the difficult times of life, to encourage us through sin and our struggle with sin, to encourage us through desiring to do what is right and also being able to do what is right, to give us the accountability that we need, to pray with us, to pray for us. We must be diligent to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we must remember that we do this in community and avail ourselves of the blessing of one another. Let's move on to the third point. Work out your salvation in view of God's greater plan of salvation, verses 14 through 16. There he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, Remember, we represent someone else. Going back to that analogy that I gave you earlier of the FedEx driver, we represent someone else in this world. As we walk about in this world, as we drive about in this world, as we fly on airplanes in this world, we don't just represent ourselves. And so how we work out our salvation reflects on the one whom we represent. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, Paul says. Now the text says all things, from the most difficult thing to the easiest thing. All in the original language means just that, all. Do all things this way. Grumbling is described as a low rumble, a low uttering of discontent. Disputing is just what you would expect. This is not a low uttering rumble. This is an outright, clearly voiced dissension or disagreement. We are instructed to refrain from both. Unfortunately, in the world, we've made an art form of grumbling and complaining. We've developed social media to make it more efficient to further cascade our grumbling and complaining to the masses for their consumption. We consume the grumbling and complaining of others and in turn grumble and complain about their complaints. The whole premise of free speech clause was allowed was to allow folks to express dissenting opinions. I'm certainly grateful for that. I wouldn't be able to preach this message without it. However, I think we have stretched that freedom of speech to the furthest degree, often cloaking our grumbling and disputing under the guise of free speech and free press. Paul says to the church, do all things without grumbling or complaining. I wonder, is that you, believer? Do you do all things without grumbling or complaining? Do you have at the top of your mind that this is the instruction of the Lord that you ought to obey? That in order for you to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, in order for you to work out your salvation, the outworking of your salvation ought to be without grumbling and disputing? Our world is dark. 
It is dark and it is full of bitter and complaining hearts. We complain about our lives. We complain about people in our lives. We complain about not having people in our lives. We complain about the weather. We complain about the traffic. We complain about the homes we have. We complain about the clothes we wear. We complain about the jobs that we have that enable us to buy the clothes that we have, that enable us to have the homes that we have, that enable us to have the food on our tables and the drink that we, we drink and consume. We complain about those things, even though without those things we would be on the street. We complain about the good that others have when we don't have the same. We complain about the evils that we face, the sin of others that impacts us, though we rarely ever complain about the evil and sin in our own heart. Complain about the evil that abounds in society, and then we complain about the government that is intended to restrain evil. If we're on the left, we complain about the right. If we're on the right, we complain about the left. When gas prices are high, we complain about everything. We complain that we want to have things our way, that others should celebrate when we have things our way. Then when someone else wants something their way and it impacts us negatively, we complain that they got their way and complain that the God whom we didn't believe in allowed them to have their way and therefore conclude that he must be evil. We complain, we grumble, we are never satisfied as a people. This world, because of our bitter complaining hearts, is dark. Of course, in the context of the church, the church is sometimes no better. Paul addressed the need for unity precisely because there was disunity in the church. There were issues of disunity in the church, and Paul is trying to encourage them to keep them on mission. Clearly, a part of this disunity ended in grumbling and disputing. That's why Paul is addressing this specifically. But we know that the problem with complaining is that it never stays there. An attitude of complaining is rooted in a heart that is dissatisfied. Desires are unfulfilled. Expectations are unfulfilled. And so we complain. This is again James 1.15. Lust conceived gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The complaint is a product of an unfulfilled desire and it seeks satisfaction. And so we sin. And that ultimately leads to death. Adultery, theft, murder... Wars all begin with a complaint, an unsatisfied, unthankful heart. Again, our world is full of bitter, complaining, grumbling hearts. Hearts which are dissatisfied with what they've been given in life, unthankful, untrusting of the God who made them and has every good and perfect gift. church ought not to be that way, but unfortunately at times it is. God has left a light in the world, in this dark world. He has left a light for it to shine in the darkness so that those living in darkness would know something about his light, his life. 
Again, do all things without grumbling or complaining. He goes on, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now he's not saying there that that you may be children of God is not indicating that we're not children of God. We are children of God by faith in Christ. First John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We are children of God by virtue of the new birth, but in order for it to be shown that we are children of God without blemish is the idea. We have to be people who do all things without grumbling or disputing. To work out our salvation, in other words, we must be people who refrain from these things. This shows that we are blameless and innocent. It shows that we are children of God without blemish. To be blameless and innocent without blemish is intended, not intended to suggest perfection. The terminology is intended to invoke the Old Testament idea of sacrifice. An Old Testament sacrifice was intended to be without spot or blemish. The animal itself was supposed to be healthy and clean when its life was presented before God to act as a substitutionary death for the sin of his people. The people of God are here presented as a sacrifice. They are an offering to the Lord. They are used in his service, his service as lights in the world. God has not removed his people from the world for a purpose. The world is crooked and twisted, always erring. Crooked and twisted means just that. The thoughts and intentions of the heart are crooked and twisted. Their understanding of God and his truth is crooked and twisted. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 1, how they suppress the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature. The pursuits of their hearts are crooked and twisted. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about how they live in the passions of their flesh and carry out the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The way they interact with each other and care for each other is crooked and twisted. Titus 3, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various pleasures and passions, passing their days in malice and anger, hated by others and hating one another. He has not removed his people from this world, but he has called a people out within this world, set a people apart within this world, left them as a light in the midst of a dark world to show the way. This is the way the Lord has always operated. He has always gone about setting apart a people in order to be a blessing to all people. All the way back to Genesis, when we received the first inklings of the good news in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would come, that someone would come to reverse the effects of the fall. We start to see that working itself out when God calls Abraham out of his people and he sets Abraham apart and he says, I will set you apart. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you so that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And as we continue throughout the, the book of the Old, the Old Testament, as we continue throughout the whole Old Testament, we see God preserving this people group. And sometimes people wonder why Israel has to be the focus. It's not because there's anything special about Israel. It's because God chose them. He could have chosen any people group. It really, I mean, what people group was irrelevant. But he chose a people group, a group of people, out of all of the other people groups in the whole world at that time. He set them apart 
He preserved them as a people. He kept them as a people. He gave them a law. He made them special. He set them apart from the rest of the world through the law and through his work within them and, in, and for them. And through that people came the Messiah, the seed of the woman. And when the Messiah came on the scene, the Lord Jesus, he said, I am the light of the world. And he said to his people, you are the light of the world. And Paul picks up on that idea of light in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says that's what salvation is all about. It's about God shining his light into our hearts so that we could see his light. And ultimately that we could become his light. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We have been shown the light of Christ. We have been made the light of Christ. We are to display the light of Christ to a darkened world. Why have we been saved? Why have we been set apart? Why have we been blessed? Again, the language of Psalm 67 that we read for our scripture reading earlier. God blesses us so that all the ends of the earth might fear him. This is God's plan. He uses you. He uses me. He uses the work that he does in our hearts to give us hearts filled with thankfulness and not bitterness and complaining. A thankful heart is the opposite of bitterness and complaining. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. In everything. A thankful heart rests in the good that God has done. A thankful heart trusts that there is not more that we need, but that God has provided exactly what we need. A thankful heart submits to the sovereignty of God in the midst of difficulty and expresses that thanksgiving in everything with hope that God will continue to do good. Giving thanks in everything is not for everything. We're not here commanded to be thankful for the difficulties of life, the death of a loved one, deteriorating health, strained and broken relationships. But we are commanded to give thanks in everything, in every circumstance. And we can because God has already proven his love to us in Christ. You never have to doubt. You never have to wonder if God loves you. You never have to wonder if God is for you because he has poured out his love for us already in Christ. Back in our text, we are to do all things without grumbling or complaining, holding fast to the word of life. This is how we hold fast to the word of life, by doing all things without grumbling or complaining. This is how we shine as lights in the world. We hold fast to the word of life as we live without complaint, as we endure without complaint, as we love one another without complaint. And as we go about proclaiming the gospel with our lips, the gospel does need to be proclaimed with our lips. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It is made all the more glorious as we use our lips for giving thanks and not for cursing one another. This is how God communicates his light to the world. It is through the display of the gospel at work in us. I'll ask again, how do you do with grumbling and complaining? Do you consciously think about who you're representing and about what is at stake? Do you bear the name of Jesus Christ in this world 
you are a citizen of heaven. You have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have been called to do all things without grumbling or complaining. You cannot respond like everyone else does. This is the life that you have been called to, believer. How are you doing with it? You cannot change the darkness around you. You can't change the darkness in your own heart. You cannot save everyone. You can't save anyone, really. Your complaints and grumbling about your life will not change your life one bit. But what you can do in a dark world is to let the light of Christ shine through you. To use your lips to give a blessing instead of a curse to one another. Those who go about life without constantly complaining shine like the stars in a dark evening sky in the middle of a desolate remote wood. In this way, instead of adding to the darkness, we adorn the gospel, we beautify the gospel, we present the gospel in all of its glory and all of its brilliance to a dark world. Again, in this section, the word of God is commanded that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We work it out in view of the personal plea from Pastor Paul. We work it out in view of God's provision of grace. We work it out in view of God's greater plan of salvation. We work it out, finally, in view of God's plan for his people. Look at 16 again, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, work out your salvation in view of God's plan for his people. What is God's plan for his people? His plan is to be used by him to bring others to faith through the gospel and to be used by him to build others in the faith of the gospel. That's what Paul has been doing. He says to the church at Philippi, as you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, as you work out your salvation with fear and trembling by being a people who do not grumble and complain against each other, as you do this, you shine as lights in the world, and I can rejoice from that. This is the reason for my ministry. This is why I've been set apart. This is what God does. He uses people to build his people. He uses people to bring faith, bring them to the faith. Paul had no illusions about his life and ministry. He knew that he would suffer for Christ's sake, to serve Christ, to build his church. He said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher for this gospel. He says, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. That's why I suffer. I'm not ashamed. And you shouldn't be ashamed either. Paul worked hard, labored so hard, suffered so, because and was still able to rejoice Precisely because he trusted the Lord and was convinced that the gospel and the word of God was what this broken world needed. Work out your salvation, and even if I die for having preached Christ to you, I'll still rejoice, because in the day of Christ, the day when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, I will have you to show for my life. 
He says, moreover, you can also be glad and rejoice with me. This is how God is at work in the world, and you have evidence of that. You are living proof of that, and you can also have that same joy. You can live it out as you walk in my steps. Paul says, this is my joy, to see you standing firm in the Lord, walking in a way that pleases Christ. Certainly the easiest reference to this would be the relationship of a pastor to a congregation. I can personally attest that it is so encouraging, it is greatly encouraging when a believer gets it, whether through a message that I have preached or a lesson that I have taught or something else that someone else has preached or taught. And they say, you know what, I get it now. And you see them walking in the truth, walking in the faith. It's so encouraging to see them applying God's word to their lives. But beloved, this joy can be yours as well. You don't have to be a pastor. And that really brings us full circle back to the first point of our text. The personal nature of this letter really demands that we consider how it applies to us all. As you seek to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and call them to faithfulness in Christ, to obey scripture, to share the gospel, to simply gather if they're not in the habit of doing so. As you call them and encourage them when they're discouraged, as you serve them using the gifts that Christ has given you for the body, as you love your brothers and sisters in Christ fervently, faithfully in this way, and call them to account, you can have the same joy. Paul is holding that out for us. Seek after it, pursue it. Don't waste your life pursuing lesser joys that the world offers. This is a greater joy that anyone who has ever been a blessing to, encouraged, admonished, strengthened another believer, and then seen them in turn walk in the faith fully established. Anyone who's ever been a part of that can heartily agree. Again, work out your salvation. God is at work in you through his servants of the gospel. He provides us with the grace of his spirit. He works in us to bring the gospel to the world and gives us joy in the midst of it all. Work out your salvation. Do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you may shine as lights in this dark world. May the Lord make that true of us all.